Follow along with me as I read to you Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? Is it like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates? We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We come to quite a difficult passage today, and it's already been a busy morning, so we're going to have to move fairly quickly, but I think we see some wonderful things here, some really encouraging things. I think one of the most scary things for a Christian, if there's one thing that people come to talk to me about that they seem to be most bothered by in their Christian life, it's doubt. Doubt troubles us. And when we doubt who Jesus is, oftentimes we, we, we get upset with ourselves, we get nervous. I think what we see in today's passage is that if you have ever doubted, you're in good company. You're not alone. In fact, I would say it's, it's fairly normal for believers. We enter into a new section of Matthew, a section that's really in many ways hard to... Uh, to see the cohesiveness of. But chapters 11 and 12 are kind of lumped together. And one of the things we see in 11 and 12 is a, a quick and growing opposition to who Jesus is. This is a theme, by the way, that is universal to all four gospel writers. All of them record growing opposition to who Jesus is that comes quickly for various reasons. For some, it's miracles. For some, it's teaching. Uh, really, in Matthew, we see some of both. But really, kind of the tip of the spear of the opposition to Jesus' ministry is, is his understanding of the Sabbath and therefore conflict with the Pharisees. Yeah, that, this, by the way, 
is a conflict that continues to this day. Our, our neighbors next to us here, whether that church adopts this as a doctrine or not, the Seventh-day Adventist church teaches that to worship on Sunday is the mark of the beast. That's official doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church. That if you worship on a Sunday, you have been marked on your forehead or your hand, a mark that you can't see, and you have taken the mark of the beast. This is a conflict that continues to this day. People still believe very, very strongly about this. So what ties these chapters together, 11 and 12? Well, I think Jim Boyce points this out very well, that as we've tracked so far in Matthew, we've seen this coming kingdom of God, and Jesus has come to announce that kingdom. But I think Matthew 11 and 12 particularly deals with the question of, is Jesus the king of that kingdom? And in our passage today, we're going to see that John the Baptist doubts whether or not Jesus is that king. The rest of chapter 11 shows us this growing opposition to who Jesus is. And then chapter 12 is full-scale attack by the Pharisees. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to see it unfold in four scenes. And it's going to start out with great encouragement, and it's going to end with great conviction. So let's dive in. Number one, the first scene is John's doubt. John's doubt in verses 1 through 3. Uh, Jesus begins teaching, as we see. John is imprisoned. Uh, Josephus would record for us that this is a prison in a fortress east of the Dead Sea. Very hot, very dry, very miserable conditions, no doubt. Modern-day Jordan. And John's just not in a good place. And so he sends his disciples, in verse 2, to ask Jesus, in verse 3, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We did, as we kind of got into the previous section of Matthew some months back, a theology of miracles, and if you weren't here for that, we can talk about it, but that's going to become very important in today's passage, because that's really the backdrop for understanding what's going on here. John the Baptist, still in prison, still has disciples, still uh, seeing the ministry of Jesus, but in the difficulty of his situation, sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come? There's, there's doubt there. It's not, it's not absolutely certain that he's not the one because John is seeing what Jesus is doing. He, he sees that Jesus' miracles and ministry fits the bill of the one whom the scriptures foretold, the one of whom would come and be the Messiah. And, and so Jesus is, is fulfilling most of the expectations that John has, but not all of them. And there's some things that Scripture says that the Messiah would be and do that Jesus is not living up to. And so John begins to doubt. Okay, we see your miracles. We know you qualify. But are you actually the one? Or should we be looking for somebody else? John's not in a good place. And probably for several reasons. Number one, he's in prison. He's in prison. What Jesus is about to tell us, he's the greatest prophet, and he's locked up in a hot, dry, nasty prison. Number two, he's probably exhausted. If we look at the, the life of the prophets throughout the Old Testament, it was not an easy job. 
Full-time ministry is difficult. Elijah was weak after the Battle of Carmel and, and needed attending to on multiple levels. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And here we may see that John is just exhausted from the ministry that he's been doing. And number three, Jesus was not living up to John's expectations. Specifically, I think the expectations that Jesus wasn't living up to was John's expectation of judgment. When John announces Jesus as the Messiah in chapter 3, we read in verse 12, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John was in prison for challenging the morals of Herod. Herod had been living with and sleeping with his brother's wife, and John spoke against that, and Herod threw him in prison, for which Herod would ultimately lose his life. And John had even been given the sign that Jesus was the Messiah. Matthew, again, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he, that is John the Baptist, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And John was told that this would be the one. We, we see that Jesus' ministry is validated. He knows who he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John says. But, but Jesus wasn't living up to his expectations. He's in prison. Where is the justice? Where is the judgment? Life doesn't look all that different. The Messiah is here, but things are still hard. Things are not good. People are still twisted. Save yourself from this twisted generation. This wicked generation, same generation in Acts 2. And, and, and John is wondering, what's going on? And I think it begs the question of us. Has Jesus ever disappointed your expectations? If the answer is no, then my guess is you haven't been a Christian for very long. Because Jesus has certainly disappointed my expectations. Now, to be clear, the problem's never with Jesus. The problem's with my expectations. But he has nonetheless disappointed my expectations. Things don't always go like I think they should. And John is in that place. And so we see he's wrestling with doubt despite evidence to the contrary, far beyond what you and I ever get to see. The second scene is Jesus' reassurance, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus says, He answered them, Go and tell John what you hear. Notice that Jesus is going to point to the miracles that he's doing. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus reassures them. And, and this is where Jesus' answer is so important. I think one of the things that's pretty easy to do is grab a verse out of its context. Like when Jesus with Peter says, Why do you doubt, O you of little faith? and turn that into something harsh. But you know, I think when Jesus is confronted with the doubts of his disciples, when we understand his response in, in uh, 
context, they're far more gentle than they are harsh. Yes, he tells Peter that he has little faith and asks him why he doubts, but he doesn't let him sink. He looks at Thomas and affirms his doubts too. But he offers himself and the wounds in his hands and his side as as evidence. And he does the same thing here. He doesn't say, hey, go back to John and tell him to stop being a knucklehead. No, he answers him. And I think he answers him with a great degree of gentleness. Why would Jesus respond to doubt with gentleness? When for most of us, doubt freaks us out. Here's the answer. And here's where I want us all to be encouraged this morning. Doubt isn't unbelief. Doubt's not unbelief. If you, if you think, of, think of a time before you were a Christian, and if you don't remember that time, go talk to somebody who became a Christian later in life. And in your B.C. days, in your before Christ days, How much time did you spend talking with your friends or your spouse or others and say, I'm really worried about my doubt today? Probably none. Because in our unbelief, we're just content. In our belief, when we struggle with doubt, then, you know, that freaks us out a little bit. I think Os Guinness, British theologian, said well that um, it, it's kind of like having two minds. It's, it's half belief and half unbelief. It's, it's a foot in both worlds, if you will. And so we're not saying it's not problematic. But, but Jesus is not dealing with John like the Pharisees who just outright reject him. He meets him in his doubt. And he offers him evidence of who he is. The same way he did with Peter. The same way he did with Thomas. But here, he does two things that I think is really important. First, he points to his miracles. And again, if we've understood rightly the purpose of miracles, uh, he's pointing to his credentials. Go tell John, look, I've got the credentials. You already understand that. But more than that, I think what Jesus is doing here is not just pointing to John the things that he's doing. I think he's pointing to the things that he's doing in connection to the scriptures. And there's several Old Testament scriptures we could look at, but I just want to look at two. And and let me first read to you, follow along, as we read Jesus' response in in verses 4 and 5. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That's Jesus' answer. Now, listen to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams 
in the desert. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance on our God, to, all, to comfort all who mourn. Interestingly, these are both, and the other references from Isaiah as well, they're both messianic uh, prophecies. Jesus is saying, look, the things you see in me are the things that were predicted. But Jesus does something really unique here that's easy to miss if we're not paying attention. And it's not the only time he does that. In in Isaiah 35 and 61, these, these passages include prophecies of judgment. But Jesus doesn't mention those. When he goes into the synagogue and reads the scroll of Isaiah and says, this has been fulfilled in your midst, he reads right up to the part where it talks about messianic judgment and then he stops. Jesus has a pattern in his ministry of quoting the Old Testament passages about him and when they get to judgment, stopping. He's meeting John right in his struggle. He's pointing to enough to say, yes, I'm the one you're looking for. But he stops short of judgment. Why would Jesus leave that out? I think there's two reasons. The first is because Jesus told us that his first ministry was not to bring judgment, but to bring grace and mercy. And praise him for it. Because... Well, when it comes to God's judgment, it's one of those, you better be careful what you ask for kinds of things. He didn't come the first time to judge. He came to be judged in our place. He came to bear our guilt to the cross and to the grave and then to be raised so that those who believe might be forgiven. The second reason is because people already stood condemned. He's clear about this. Moses already, what's the, what's the reference to Moses? The law. You don't have to read far into Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy to go, I broke that. And so he didn't come to judge because the scriptures already were doing that. We all already stood condemned. And I think he's making the point to John that his ministry at his first coming was to bring grace and mercy, and his ministry at his second coming will be to judge. But what do we do when we doubt? Well, when our, when our circumstances leave us questioning, I think there's two things. We look at who Jesus is, and we look at how he fulfills the Scriptures. It's here that we are reaffirmed that he is who he says he is. And it's in seeing that who he is that we realize that he is good and trustworthy. And that even when things aren't going our way, we can still trust him. The third scene, and this one unfolds starting in verse 7 after John's disciples go away, is Jesus begins to speak of John's privilege. It begins to speak of John's privilege. And, and the disciples go away, and Jesus turns around, and he begins to address the crowd. And this is where our passage, by the way, gets tough 
today, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to address all your questions. If you want more info, see me between services or, or something. We can talk about it. But I'll do my best to give you the things you need to, to sort through some of this. In 7.15, as they go away, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? These reeds would have grown commonly around bodies of water in Israel. They, they still do. Uh, they're thin. They, they're, you know, they grow along the banks, and they're easily blown around by the wind. The wind blows one way, and they bend one way. The wind blows the other way, and they blow the other way. And I think what Jesus is asking is, hey, is the reason you flocked to hear John's ministry because he was so wishy-washy? Well, the answer is decisively no. That is not what they went out to see. And so even in John's doubt here, even in his vacillation on who the Messiah is, he was not a man who lacked conviction, who lacked certainty. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? A wealthy man? A man who made a good living? No, John was dressed in camel's hair and with a leather belt and ate locust and wild honey. If, if we see John's character in the first set of questions, this second set of questions shows his willingness to, to, to deny himself. He was a man of conviction and a man of self-denial. And it wasn't that he, he, he lived a lavish, comfortable life that attracted people. It wasn't that he lived a wishy-washy life that attracted people. It's because he was resolute and self-sacrificing and on mission for the king that people went out to see him. Because people who wear soft clothing, well, they're, they're in king's houses. If you, if you know much about the Old Testament prophets, those who lived in king's houses usually did so because they said the things the king liked, whether they were the things God said or not. John wasn't saying the things that the kings or the people wanted to hear for the sake of living extravagantly. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? One who speaks on behalf of God? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. And then, of course, we get a quote here from Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And then we come to this spot where, where this would have probably blown the minds of the average Jew. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What? John the Baptist is the greatest prophet? What miracles did he do? None. Neither scripture nor history record any. He's imprisoned. Most of his disciples, before he dies, he kicks out and sends to Jesus. He's about to get his head chopped off. He wasn't wearing soft clothing, and he's struggling with doubt. He didn't, do, he didn't perform miracles like Elijah and Elisha. He didn't write books like Moses. Why, why is he the greatest of the prophets? Because of Malachi 3. 
Because he's the one who got to point to Jesus. He's the one who got to say, here he is. It it wasn't the miracle workers or the scripture writers who had the greatest privilege. It was the one who stood up and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, And then, notice what Jesus says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John didn't even make it to to Jesus' death and resurrection. But for you and I, least in the kingdom people, who get to say, let me tell you about Jesus, not just the one who will be coming, but the one who came, the one who lived, the one who died, the one who was resurrected, the one whom, if you will receive by faith, you can save yourself from this wicked generation. We get to be the greatest in the kingdom if we are the ones who get to announce Jesus. But most of us approach the task with dread. We have this movie at home that we've watched a bunch throughout the years. It's it's called The Rookie. And you may have seen it with Dennis Quaid. And it's a true story about this uh, baseball player who hurt his... his, uh, Uh, shoulder I think it was in college and now he's a teacher at a school in West Texas and he he makes a deal with his players to get to uh, that he would try out for a team if they won the I think it was a regional championship of some sort and these guys take up the challenge and they win and he's got to find a tryout and he's an old man and he goes to this tryout and he throws the ball crazy fast keep in mind this is a true story And he gets picked up by a professional team. And he's playing farm baseball. And his team hates him. They think he's a publicity stunt. They're not very excited. And in the movie, I don't know how well this holds to to life, but in the movie, there's one day he gives an interview, and the team's frustrated with him because once again, this old man who probably has no future in baseball is getting to give the interview. And and he goes into a bar after... uh, words and he's, he sits down and, and the TV's on and it's the interview and he talks about playing baseball as a kid and, and then he walks out and, and sees that there's a little league field where the lights are on and these kids are playing at night and he goes over and he just looks over the fence and he watches these, these kids play the next day he wakes up and he looks at one of his teammates, a guy by the name of Brooks with that Dennis Quaid gigantic smile. He says, you know what we get to do today, Brooks? We get to play baseball. And there's an enthusiasm to playing baseball. What's our response when we get to, when I get to stand up here before you and say, you know what we get to do today, church? We get to tell people about it. Jesus. Does that excite you? It ought to. And if it doesn't, please, with me, confess your sin and ask God's help. Because it is. We get to tell people about Jesus. That was John's privilege. It made him the greatest Old Testament prophet, and yet we, post-life death and resurrection of Jesus... We get a greater privilege. We get a greater privilege than that. But Jesus gives a warning. 
And this is where the conviction begins to come. And it's convicting. He goes on to say, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. We can understand that. People violently attacked Jesus and his followers and us. This idea of and the violent take it by force is difficult to understand. It's difficult to translate. I'm just going to give you two options and tell you I don't know which, though I'm inclined towards one. If this is a pattern, there's two words in Greek that are identical. That's where the difficulty comes in. If this is a passive voiced verb, it means that the, those who attack the, the kingdom, you know, they, they, they do so by force, and that those in the kingdom suffer that violence. If this is a middle-voiced verb, what it means is that the kingdom has suffered violence, but now, by violence, the church pushes back. Now, that doesn't mean, nobody understands that to mean that we, we advance the kingdom with sticks and rocks and swords and guns. That's not what this means, but when Jesus says the violent take it by force, it means that when the world comes against us with violence against the kingdom, bold people of conviction like John push back with the proclamation of the gospel. Either way, the point in the text still stands. So on one hand, Jesus is saying, hey, sometimes you may suffer at the hands of violent people. And on the other hand, he's saying, when you suffer at the hands of violent people, be bold with the gospel. Um, I think the second interpretation fits the context a little better. But I don't think he's advocating for us to be violent in our uh, pushing forward of the gospel. I think he's... he's calling us to be bold and there's some difficult words in here but let's move on the violent take it by force verse 13 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until john and if you are willing to accept it he is elijah who is to come now jesus isn't literally saying that he's elijah he's just a prophet in the spirit of elijah he who has ears to hear let him hear but and here's where the warning comes in for you and i but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. Mom and dad are working in the store. The children are in the marketplace. They're, they're playing in the street while mom and dad are about business. And they want to play with their friends. And so we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We, we, we played a happy song. And you didn't seem happy. So we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. We sang a sad song, and you didn't mourn. What's Jesus getting at? Didn't matter what was done, they complained. For John came neither eating and drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. John got criticized for one thing. Jesus got criticized for the exact opposite. It didn't matter what was going to be done. There was complaint. There's a couple of applications of this for us. First, to, to those who don't believe. And I don't mean if you're in this room and you don't believe. If you're in this room and you don't believe, you need to trust in Jesus to pay for your sins and to usher you into a right relationship with God. 
But as, as we as a church think about unbelievers, I think one of the things we need to understand is there will always be a reason for the world to complain. And it's a bad idea to measure ministry by the response of the world. Because sometimes it just doesn't matter what you do, people aren't going to like it. And it didn't matter what Jesus did, and it didn't matter what John did, people didn't like it. But more to the point for us, what do we do? Well, you can spend your time complaining, but it gets in the way of your ministry. It gets in the way of your telling people who Jesus is. The reality is that, that there's just some people who are never satisfied. The music's too loud. The music's not loud enough. The music's too long. The music's not long enough. The music's too old. The music's too new. The sermons are too long. The sermons are too short. The sermons are too deep. The sermons aren't deep enough. The sermons are too harsh. The sermons aren't harsh enough. I think if Christians would spend as much time applying the sermons as they do criticizing them, a whole lot more might be done for the kingdom. And I don't mean questioning what I say and comparing it to Scripture. I mean criticizing style. If we spend all our time complaining, we'll spend little time ministering. I've never seen a circuit of church hopping like exists here in Walla Walla. Like, I go to one church until my preferences aren't met, and then I go somewhere else. And when they offend my preferences, I go somewhere else. I'm going to stay just long enough to find something to complain about. I'm going to complain, and I'm going to leave, and then I'm going to take my critical spirit to the next place. And i got to be honest, it's pretty hard when, when those people leave to not think, well, they can be somebody else's problem. Are there things to complain about? Well, you bet there are. In a room full of this many sinners, there's probably lots of things to complain about. But do you know that complaining about problems very rarely offers a solution? And almost never in my 25 years of ministry when somebody's complained about a problem and I've said, well, how are you going to be part of the solution? Have I actually had somebody respond? No, 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 no. I'm just bringing this issue to your attention. If you're never satisfied, the problem is most likely not your circumstances. It's your heart. And if we play a flute, and you don't dance, and we play a dirge, and you don't mourn, you can't be involved in kingdom ministry if you're too busy dis being disengaged from it. That's the reality. The least become the greatest when they point people to Jesus. And so Jesus here, he's equal parts tough and tender. He's equal parts encouragement and warning. The question for us all is, will we receive both? Lord, you are masterful at being tough and tender. May we be humble in receiving both. May we, may we engage in the ministry of telling people 
about Jesus with excitement and enthusiasm, both to unbelievers who don't know Jesus and to other believers so that they might grow in their knowledge and affection for you. Would you forgive us for the idolatrous sin of complaint, which we're so prone to, and I feel so very good at, and yet you call us to other things. You call us to joyful proclamation of who Jesus is. And may we be engaged in the wondrous privilege of gospel ministry for your glory and for the good of those around us, we ask in Jesus' name.